Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. The story is told of a, of a two-year-old little boy. By his own mom's testimony, the little guy was built like a tank. It's just a strong gorilla-type little guy he was. But one day, he went to the fridge, and he opened the fridge... And he found his daddy's stash of chocolate donuts. He was eating them. He opened the box. He was this little boy, grabbed the whole box. He opened the box and he was eating these donuts, all of them, while he was facing the fridge, hoping that everyone behind him would not see him eating all of the donuts. He thought that because he could not see everybody else, he thought that nobody else could see him. Of course, the little guy ate all of the donuts except for two, and he had one in his left hand and one in his right hand, and as he left the refrigerator, there was a semicircle of chocolate crumbs all around him on the floor where he had dropped many of the crumbs from the donuts. Well, with a donut in his left hand and a donut in his right hand, he began walking up the stairs, and he walked down the hallway upstairs right into the bedroom, and he shut the door, quietly tucking himself into his own bed, hoping that no one would notice, and he went right to sleep. It was a little while later that dad and mom followed the trail of chocolate crumbs. It was not hard to follow And they opened the door to that bedroom and they found him fast asleep in his bed. There he was with a layer of chocolate crumbs in his bed, his hands utterly covered with chocolate frosting, his face smothered with chocolate crumbs and frosting. He was an absolute mess. That was the testimony of his mother. The little boy was guilty. He was found. He was exposed. What he thought he could hide was actually quite evident and visible before the eyes of dad and mom. He thought he could cover up his deeds, but in reality, it was very, very uncovered. Like a, like a little boy who's playing hide-and-go-seek, and he hides behind a clear glass door, thinking that no one will find him. Or like a little child playing hide-and-go-seek and they're hiding behind a flagpole thinking that no one will find them. We understand that, don't we? We understand what it is for people to try to cover up things. We understand what it is for people to try to, to cover up anything, nearly everything. We have that all around us in our society. There are those who try to cover up wrinkles on their face. There are those who try to cover up emotions, inferiority, anxiety, and fears. There are those who try to cover up body odor with more deodorant. There are those who try to cover up their baldness. There are those who try to cover up a mistake on a home project or a craft that is done. There are those who may try to cover up a tattoo. There are those who may try to cover up a hole in the wall, so you just put a picture over it. Anybody else do that besides me? Maybe you try to cover up a bad hair day, so you wear a baseball hat. Cover-ups. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And yet what we must realize is that God sees everything. Look in Hebrews chapter 4. I want to read verses 
12 and 13. And then I want to preach this passage of the Bible so that we can understand the reality that there really are no cover-ups with God. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Let's pray and ask God for his blessing. Father, as we come to your word, we have the most powerful treasure in all of the world open on our laps. The precious word of God. Oh Lord, we pray that you would teach us wonderful things from your law. We pray, O Lord, that your word would do its work in us so that we would receive it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in us who believe. We pray that you will teach us and change us by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. God is everywhere. He is everywhere. And if you notice in verse 12, if you look in your Bible, we've looked at this the last couple of weeks. We've talked about the word of God for the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two edged sword. That's the Bible. The Bible is the living word of God. But today we're looking at verse 13 and we're not looking at an it as the Bible. We're looking at he, which is God. So verse 12 speaks of the word of God. Verse 13 shows us the God of the word. They are inseparable. They are inseparable. You cannot divorce God from his word. The word of God pierces. The word of God judges. And the word of God exposes. Why? Because God sees it all. God sees everything. We're going to look at that today when we come to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. I want to remind you, though, just where we've been in previous weeks. The book of Hebrews is a sermon. So what we are looking at in our Bible in the book of Hebrews is actually a sermon that has been written down for us to show the early Jewish Christian church one simple reality in many ways. But the simple truth is that Jesus is better. He is better. He is supreme. He is exalted. What's the result? What's the implication? Believe in him. Hold fast to him. Cling to him. You must look to Jesus. He is better, chapter 1, because he's God. He is better, chapter 2, because he can relate to you as a real man. He is better because at the end of chapter 2, he's the only one who can deal with your sin problem. He made a full atonement and propitiation for sins. So chapters 3 and 4 has taught us, what do you do with all of that? Today, you must believe. Don't harden your heart. Don't be like Israel of old, where they knew truth about God, but they did not believe. They did not obey. They did not cling to God. And the proof text 
that the author has gone to for this is Psalm 95. Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. Now, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 that we're looking at today in the last few weeks is a wonderful portion of God's word, but, but it's not like a, a standalone verse on the doctrine of bibliology, although it teaches a lot about the Bible. But it's not a standalone verse. It occurs in a context. It occurs in a, in a place in the author's argument. And we see that in chapter 4, verse 12, when he says, for. Let me explain to you why it's so important for you to take action and believe on Christ. Why you must believe today. Don't wait. Don't procrastinate. Don't put it off. Why? Here's the reason. Look at verse 12. Let me explain. For the reason is the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow, and it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. If you don't hear what the word says, and you don't believe in the Christ and come to rest your soul in him, you're going to perish forever in hell. That's what the Bible says. It's clearly the word of God. So there's an urgency, and the urgency is hear God's word, hear God's message and take action, and take action. What we have been looking at last, the last few weeks and then today is we have looked at these unrivaled glories of the Word of God. What is God's Word like? And you'll remember the first unrivaled glory of the Word that we saw a few weeks ago is that the Word is living. Remember that? The Word is living. Verse 12, the Word of God is living and active. And it means it's alive. Why is it alive? Because God is alive. When you read the word of God, you meet God. You encounter God. Does God speak? Yes, only through the written word of God. Never apart from the word of God, only by and with the word of God. It is a living book because it is the living word of the living God. The Bible is successful. It is effectual. It never fails. It is like a a sharp sword that pierces deep. So it's not only number one living, but remember last week we saw number two, the unrivaled glory of the word. It is a piercing word. It pierces into the very innermost part of a man. I mean, the hardest of human hearts. Why do I do what I do? Why do I think the way that I think? Why do I respond the way that I respond? Why do I talk the way that I talk? Why is our world the way, the way, the way that it is? The Bible pierces and it exposes the innermost part of who we really are. It's like God's x-ray. It shows us the innermost core of man. The word of God is living, number one. The word of God is piercing, number two. And then last week we looked at number three, the word of God is judging. The word of God is judging. Verse 12 says, it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That means the Bible is our critic. We don't like people to be critical of us in our pride. We don't want that. And yet God in his word is the perfect critic of all of us. 
God in the word judges our innermost thoughts, our intentions, our purposes, our motivations. And so the word is living. The word actually brings about change. It is the word of God that is powerful. So before we come to the fourth point here in a moment, ponder with me. If the Bible really is living, if the Bible really is piercing, if the Bible really is judging, if it really is this powerful, I mean, just imagine how this ought to impact the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Imagine how this ought to impact our attendance when we willfully and deliberately put ourselves under the Word of God read and exposited and applied. Imagine the impact that the power of the word should have on us in our preparation for worship, our attention during worship, and then our applying the word after the worship time is over. Imagine how the living word of God should apply and affect our marriages, how it should affect our parenting, how it should affect our evangelism toward the lost, how it should affect our personal devotion times. How the word of God should affect our comfort and our hope and our joys while going through trials in this life. Imagine how the word of God should give us assurance when you're doubting your own salvation. I mean, this book, the word of God, should impact every aspect of our lives. By the way, just a little footnote. How do we know that this book is the word of God? I was on a college campus this week, and somebody comes up to me, and they have a question. They say, yeah, but that's just a human book. Do you actually believe that that's the word of God? And they said it in a mocking way. And I said, well, of course it is. It's the word of God. How do you know that? How do you know that this book is unlike every other book? And Christian, I want you to hear this. This is the blessed and the beautiful work of the Holy Spirit. There is no argument or debate that you could ever have with all the 25 reasons why the Bible's better. Those can be there and those can be fine and appropriate for different conversations, but that won't convince anybody. It's never just an intellectual issue. It's a spiritual moral issue. Well, how does someone come to believe that the Bible is the word of God? Answer through the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Hear that. That's really important. We could read all the books of apologetics, and there's a right place for those. I don't want to minimize that, and I don't want to diminish all of that. But something far more important than reading a bunch of blogs and books and seeing podcasts is recognizing the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Because it is the beautiful, glorious work of God the Spirit whereby he establishes, he testifies, and he's the one who attests to the Scripture's authority in our hearts. I can't prove it to you to change your heart, nor can you with somebody else, but God the Spirit can. God the Spirit can. It is God the Holy Spirit who gives the certainty 
that this book that you and I have in front of you is the living, piercing, judging, true word of God. And the proof text for that is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The whole chapter is all about how the Spirit of God bears witness with his word. And because of that, we know these things are true. Why? Not because of my argumentation, but because the Spirit of God bears witness with our hearts. He's the one who assures us and establishes the reality of the living and the true and the eternal and the authoritative nature of the word. So we have seen in these weeks that that the word of God is living, the word of God is piercing, the word of God is judging. But let me give you a fourth heading. If you're taking notes, you'll want to jot this down. This comes right out of verse 13. The word of God is exposing. It is exposing. And that's what verse 13 says. There's no creature hidden from his sight, meaning God's sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Ponder with me for a minute. We are living in times and we're living in a world with all the surveillance cameras, with all the IDs, with all the tracking devices, with all the online security that's out there and tracking and technology that's available nowadays. It's, it's like it's, it's hard to hide from anything. It's hard to hide from anyone. How much more is it impossible to hide from God? Boys and girls, do you hear that? It is impossible to hide from God. Let me give you some scriptures on that. Proverbs 15 verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. In Jeremiah 16, verse 17, God says, My eyes are on all of their ways. They are not hidden from my face. And Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 26, there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. We we just can't hide from God. Nobody can hide from God. What you do in the public isn't hidden from God. What you do in the private isn't hidden from God. What you might do on social media is not hidden from God. What you might do in the innermost bedroom is not hidden from God. He sees it all. And let's understand how the word, how our God exposes everything. Now, if you're taking notes, the main heading that I gave you today is the word of God is exposing. But as we're looking at verse 13, I want to do it phrase by phrase and show you a couple of ways in which the word exposes. Consider with me first, every single creature. Every single creature. Look at verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight. I mean, I think of it like God's microscope. The microscope of God, as it were, just sort of lays everything bare. It fully brings to light even the smallest microbe of a doubt that I might have in my heart, of a, of a fearful motive in my heart, of, of my conduct, of my thoughts, of my words, of all of my intentions. It's like the microscope of God sees it all. There's no creature hidden from God's sight. 
Do you see in verse 13, look carefully in your, in your English Bible. Do you see how it's singular? There is no creature. It's singular, it's vast, and it's exhaustive. There's no created thing. I mean, there's nothing hidden from God's sight. I like the way one commentator translated this from the Hebrew. He said, there's not one single thing in the whole of creation that is hidden before God. Nothing. I mean, there's nothing that is invisible to God. So when we come to the word of God, that is the place where we find the omniscient and the omnipresent God revealed as he describes himself. And he says there's no part of reality, there's no part of existence that is unknown to him or incomprehensible to him. I mean, go to whatever science department and ask them. How many galaxies? Well, they're finding more and they're finding more and they're finding more and it's bigger and it's grander and it's more vast than they ever realized. And yet it's all open before the eyes of God. But that includes secret sins that may be hidden from fellow men, from a father or mother or from a spouse or from a pastor elder, but they're not hidden from God. What man does not know about himself and what man doesn't know about his innermost being, God knows. What man thinks, what man does, what man intends, what man purposes, the motivations of his heart are always in the full spotlight before God. Every atom, every molecule, every electron, every proton, every movement in all of existence is always in the direct sight of God's eye. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl is open before God. He sees it all. He sees it all. From the ocean floor to the highest heavens, to the office place, to the home office, to the remotest region, to the farthest galaxy, to the highest tree in the mountaintop, to the lowest valley, God sees everything. A.W. Tozer said, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters. God knows all mind and every mind. God knows all spirits and all spirits. He knows all beings and every being. He knows all creaturehood and all creatures. He knows all plurality and all pluralities. He knows all law and every single law. He knows all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, every unuttered secret, every throne, every dominion, every personality, everything visible and invisible in heaven and on earth and motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. God knows it all. Well, that sums it up. Sums it up. Look again at the beginning of verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight. There are two attributes of God that this brings us to. The first attribute of God is the omnipresence of God. 
And, and boys and girls, you know this. You know that God is everywhere. And we all say amen to that. But it's more than just that. It's not like God's arm is in Africa and his foot is in China and his head is here in America. It's not that. It's that God is everywhere in the fullness of his being. So he is 100% here right now with you. While at the same time, he is 100% in the most remote regions of northern Russia. He is in the fullness of his being on the ocean floor. He is in the fullness of his being in the outermost part of all of the galaxies. God is 100% in the fullness of his being present everywhere. There's no creature hidden from God. Ponder that. Ponder that. That is the omnipresence of God. But then there's also a related attribute of God, and that's the omniscience of God. That God has perfect and complete knowledge of all things, including actual things and possible things, past, present, and future. And one of the wonderful scriptures that we could read on this is Psalm 139. When David writes Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and you've known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before you laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not light, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. What a God! The omnipresence of God and the omniscience of God. And right here in Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from God's sight. I mean, how would that affect how I live my life and how you live your life if we consciously thought of this every day? I mean, how would you and I use our time if we know that God sees and God is there with us? How would we talk and communicate differently if, if we knew God and the fullness of his being is right here? How would, how would my, my work demeanor and my effort and my attitude change in the workplace or children when you're doing class and you're in school? How would that change if we really thought God sees what I'm doing and he's with me right now? How? How would our prayer lives differ 
if we knew that God saw what was going on and how God was present with us. Every single created thing. The word of God is exposing. Look at verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight. So not only is it every single created thing, but if you're jotting down notes, here's the second way in which we see that the word exposes. Not only is it every created thing. Second, it is a full disclosure. What would would, would you say if somebody came to you, let's say tomorrow morning, and they... They knock on your door and they say, I'm, I'm glad that you unlocked your door and you came to the, to the door. I want to do a thorough study on your life. I'm going to research you. I'm going to study your past. I'm going to study your work. I'm going to study your family. I'm going to study your relationships. I'm going to study your upbringing. I'm going to study even your financial dealings. I'm going to study your, your religious walk. I'm going to study your hobbies, your time management. I mean, everything about you. I'm going to do a thorough study on your life. And then they say, could I then write a biography on you from what I find? Could you say with Charles Spurgeon, go ahead, write it in the clouds in the sky. I have nothing to hide. Could we say that? Could we say that? Because verse 13 brings us to that very issue. There is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of God. Open and laid bare. Let's look at these two words, open and laid bare. Now, I have in the NASB, I have open. Maybe in your English Bible, you have the word uncovered. Maybe in your English translation, you have the word Naked. It's actually the word naked in the Greek. Job chapter 26, verse 6. Naked is Sheol before God, and Abaddon has no covering. That'd be like saying death and hell have no covering before God. They are all open and exposed to God. Proverbs 15, 11, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more are the hearts of men? I always get a chuckle when I read 2 Kings 6, verse 12, when it was said of the prophet Elisha uh, that, that God, uh, that, that, that the prophet knows and speaks the words that you speak in your bedroom. <laughs> you can't hide from God. Even what you think you're saying in secret, God knows it and he's going to expose it. Verse 13, all things are open. All things are exposed. Take your Bible. What does this mean? I want you to go with me to the very beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 3. I want to show you what this means in this topic of nakedness before God. Nakedness before God. Now, as you're turning to Genesis 3, here's what's going on. God made Adam and Eve in his own image, male and female. He made them. He told them that they can eat any tree in the garden. What a gracious God. What a merciful God. What a marvelous God. But there's one tree you can't eat from. In Genesis chapter 3, the woman was deceived by the serpent. She took from 
the fruit of the forbidden tree, and she ate. And then she gave to her husband, who was there right there next to her, the Hebrew says, failed in manly leadership, utter failure at that point. He didn't protect her. She gave to her husband, Adam. He was right there with her and he ate. And then verse seven, look at this, Genesis three, seven, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were, here's the word, naked. They were exposed. We've sinned. What do they do? Look at the first thing they do. Verse 7, they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loin coverings. Why? They wanted to hide from God. That's what sin does. Guilt. Shame. You want to hide it? They sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loin coverings. Well, then the Lord is there in the garden. Look at verse 10. The Lord called to the man and said, where are you? Verse 10, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. What? What do you mean you were afraid of God? Yeah, verse 10. I was afraid because I was naked. But in chapter 2, you were naked and you were fine. Why? I was naked, so I hid myself. Do you see what sin does? Do you see how everything is completely exposed before God? Here's the lesson. Don't miss it from Genesis 3. Sin always brings guilt. It always brings shame. And men and women try to hide it. They try to cover it. They try to push it aside. They try to redefine it in every possible way, but it never works. Sin brings shame. We see the guilt and the shame and the exposure And the punishment, verse 11, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then there's a little blame shifting that goes on. The man blames the woman. The woman blames the serpent. In verse 15, what an amazing God. They should have died physically. They did spiritually, but they should have died right then and there, but they didn't. In verse 15, we call it the first gospel. The first gospel, verse 15, I will put enmity, God says, between you and the woman, speaking to Satan, and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise you on the head. That's a death blow. When the seed of the woman, that's Jesus the Messiah, he will deal a death blow to Satan on the head. But the last phrase of verse 15, but you, Satan, will bruise him, the Messiah, on the heel. Bad, painful, debilitating, but not fatal. But Satan receives the death blow at the work of Christ. And then we come just a little bit further down after all of that to verse 20. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. Hold on, that means God killed an animal. He made garments of skin. God made the first substitutionary sacrifice. 
Adam and Eve should have died, but God is the one who killed an animal. He took garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. They didn't deserve it. They should have died, but a substitute died in their place. As a picture of the coming one, the coming one who would be the substitute for those who are the guilty none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord. What's the point of all of this? Back to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. All things are naked. What does that mean? You can't hide from God. We are no different than Adam and Eve Eve in the garden, and they sinned, and they were exposed, and they tried to hide, but there's nowhere to hide. We're naked before God. I love Revelation. Let me just read this quickly. Revelation chapter 3, it's the last of the letters that Jesus gives to the churches. And you know the letter to the church at Laodicea. Uh, He says in Revelation 3.16, because you're lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Right after that, verse 17, Jesus says, because you say I'm rich and you say I'm wealthy, I don't need anything, you don't know that you are wretched miserable, poor, blind, naked. What's Jesus saying to those in that church that are lukewarm? They know Jesus by profession, but they're not living for him. Jesus says, you can't hide from me. You're exposed. Verse 18, very next verse. Jesus said, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you might become rich. White garment so that you might clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. An eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. What's the point of all that? Jesus says, come to me and I will give you what you need for life and for forgiveness and for salvation. So the shame of your nakedness may be covered. Come to Jesus. Back to Hebrews 4. That's what our verse is teaching us. That the word of God is living, piercing, judging, and exposing. Man, we are all naked and exposed before the eyes of Almighty God. You can't hide from Him. Middle of verse 13 of Hebrews 4, all things are open, and then it says all things are laid bare. Now, this is an interesting word in the Greek. It's not a noun. It's actually a verbal form, laid bare, and it's not the verb laid bare so much as it is the verb for neck. However, you make an action out of neck. Why that? Well, because the picture here is of someone who says, I can't get away like a wrestler. Imagine a wrestler in the ancient world, or perhaps even nowadays as well, where the, the word was often used of wrestlers in the Greco-Roman times, where they would have one another in a hold, and it would involve gripping the neck, almost like a chokehold, as it were. And it's so painful and powerful that it brought victory. It's like you can't move, you're exposed, you can't go anywhere when you're in that hold. That's the idea of what God's word does to you and me. I can't escape. 
It's like the word wrestles me and the word puts me in a chokehold and I'm naked before God and I can't get out of the grip of what God and his word has revealed about me. Proof for this comes from Job chapter 16 and verse 12. Job is in one of these laments about his life, just sorrowing about his life painful life that he's lived. Here's what Job says. I was at ease, but God shattered me. And God grasped me by the neck and he shook me to pieces and God set me up as his target. What's Job saying? He says, it's like, God, you've wrestled me down. You've grabbed a hold of me by the neck and I'm your target and I can't get away. Behold, what the word of God does to all of us. I love telling young men and women on college campuses, I love telling them this. You are not in authority over God. God is over you. God is. He's the authority. It's like God, through the power of his word, has every person wrestled down in a chokehold so that you can't escape. You can't. The story is told in the 1800s of a, of a man who went to a revival meeting. And while he was at this revival re- meeting, the, the man was up front and he was preaching the word of God. He was preaching the gospel, and when he was all finished preaching, the crowds left and the crowds dispersed. It was in the northern Canada regions. But there was one man, as the crowds were all leaving, one man who came running to the front. He came running to the front, and he fell to his knees, and he was crying out mightily to God. In fact, some of the eyewitnesses who were there said the man was screaming so loudly in his prayers that you could hear him from a mile away. He was convicted. He was uncovered. He was laid bare. He was exposed. He had, he had become a backslidden church member. By his own testimony, he had paid lip service to God for many years. He had lived, lived patterns of sin in his life. Quote, the man said, I saw myself before God's judgment bar and I was slipping into hell and everything in all of the world that I had been living for suddenly meant nothing to me. That's the power of the exposing word of God. It's, it's like I'm, I'm laid bare. I'm exposed. I'm naked. I have nowhere to go from God. He knows everything. He's everywhere present in the fullness of his being. All things are open and laid bare before his eyes. Speaking of falling into judgment, that leads us to the last little phrase of verse 13. How is the word of God exposing? It gives a real Accounting. 
Now, if you look with me at the end of verse 13, our English translations are a little bit different here. If you have the ESV, you have to whom we must give account. Another English translation says to whom God is our reckoning. The NASB says with whom we have to do. The idea in the original Greek is we have to give an account of ourselves before the judgment of God. It's like Ecclesiastes 12, 14. It's a wonderful cross-reference. God will bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. Everything will be brought before the judgment bar of God. I mean, ponder that for a sec. What, what one writer said, all the books must be audited. All the bills and the payments and the receipts must be handed over to this judge to be checked. We have to give account of ourselves to God. All the books of our heart are open to God. Nothing escapes God. And we will give account. The Bible says God has a book. Now, let me, let me make sure I'm singular with that. God has a book. And that book is the Lamb's book of life. And that book that God has, has the names of all of the blood-bought children of God, all of the elect, all of the chosen ones, all of God's children of all of history, all of God's people are written in that book. Philippians 4 says that. Jesus says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's a wonderful hope that we have. But listen, God also has books. With the plural. He has books. Let me read it for you. Revelation 20 verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were opened plural. And yet there was another book opened, which is the book of life. But the dead are judged from the things which were written in the books according to all their deeds. Do you hear that? It's almost like Revelation 20 is looking ahead to that day. We call it the great white throne judgment when every unbeliever who has ever lived will be brought before the judgment of Jesus Christ and they will give an account to him based upon everything they've ever done recorded in God's books. I said to one girl this week on a college campus, what would you do if everything you've ever done was put on a PowerPoint screen? You would run out of here so fast. And yet God has books. Verse 13 of Revelation 20, the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were all judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, meaning nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Thrown into the lake of fire? I mean, do you hear that? God has books. 
with whom we must give account. I want you to hear this very carefully. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. In the Hebrew language, it's if you, O God, were the accountant and you were marking, you were tallying as if God had an Excel spreadsheet, every iniquity that you've ever committed and it's on there. Verse three, oh Lord, who could stand in the judgment? I mean, who in the world? Who, who could do that? Not me. Not you, boys and girls. Not you as well. Hebrews four is a warning context. Today, come to Christ. Today, believe. Why? Because if you don't, if you don't, you're going to meet God naked and exposed. And you're going to have to give an account of your life before God who's got in his books everything that you've done and you can't hide from him. Next verse in Psalm 130. After he says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But, listen to this, but there is forgiveness with you. That's good news. There's forgiveness. Where can I go to escape the reckoning? Where do I go? Where do I go to escape the judgment day? Where do I go to escape the books that God has of all of my deeds that I've ever lived? Answer, you have to go to God. He's the only one who can deal with your problem. If you have your Bible open, still to Hebrews chapter 4. We've been looking at verse 13 the whole night. Look at verse 14. This is going to be our whole study next week, but let's just look at it now. Where do you go for hope? Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold Fast our confession. Where do we go with all of our sin debt that we have, with all of our legal iniquities that we have done against God? Where do we go? Where do we run? Where do we hide? We must run to the great high priest. Some Puritans of old wrote hymns and they loved to preach on this phrase. All of your debts have been cast upon Christ. All of your debts cast upon Christ. In my favorite book outside of the Bible, it's the Gatsby Hymnal. William Gatsby said this. With me upon his heart, he stooped to bleed and die. And when my guilt was to him charged, the charge my Savior didn't deny The debt, although it was great, he paid it all, that I might be set free. No charge charge against me can be brought, because Jesus died for me. 
Hear that. Hear the reality of what the Bible says, that there is no one hidden from God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of God, with whom we all have to give an account. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to run? Where are we going to hide when God rolls out all of our deeds written in his books? The only place to go is the great High priest. The only place to go is the great high priest. It's almost as if verse 13 that I've been preaching on this afternoon is a warning. No one can hide from God. But yet the comfort is verse 14. We have a great high priest. We have a great savior. We have a fitting redeemer. We have one who took all of our debts. He said, Father, put them all on me. I'll take them all. What a wonderful, wonderful Savior we have. And all of this, all of this found in the Word. We've been looking at these unrivaled glories of the Word. The Word is living. The Word is piercing. The Word is judging. Today we've seen the Word is exposing. Oh man, if it exposes my heart, where do I go? Where do I go? I have no hope but to go to Christ, the great high priest. I need this. You need this. Not just one day to get saved, but every day of our lives. The days when you have your test, the day when you've got that project due, the day when you've got that exam, the day when you've got that interview, every day of our lives, we need to be reminded that there's a great high priest. Busy dads and busy and tired moms, you have a great high priest. Remember this. Remember this. I think it would do us well to resolve to say with John Wesley, the evangelist in England in the 18th century, he said, I am a man of one book. I'm a man of one book. And it's the book of God's word, the Bible. So I want to close with this. It was July 8th, 1741. Church historians know that year, 1741. We May pray for revival. Say, oh God, visit us again like you did in 1741. It was on July 8th, 1741, that Jonathan Edwards preached that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which you're all aware of. He preached it, but you know, he preached it the first time in his church with no effect. No effect. He preached it a second time at a different church. The biographer of Jonathan Edwards was named Ian Murray. He said churches during this time in the 1740s that had been cold and dry in the beginning of the year were now transformed by the power of God by the end of the year. 
As Jonathan Edwards put it in a pastor friend who was living in Boston, Edwards said it was a frequent thing to see houses filled with crying out to God. People would be fainting over their sin. There would be like convulsions over their sin, trembling before the majesty of God with admiration and joy in the hope of the gospel. And so Jonathan Edwards had preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, but he started it, but he couldn't finish it. The impact of the preaching of the word of God so came upon the people that were there. The crying and the weeping and the wailing was so loud. It was so loud that Jonathan Edwards could not finish the sermon. He couldn't finish the sermon. Pastors that were there that day had to go among the people and pray with them in groups. And God was saving many people because they were fearful of giving account to God, the judge in hell. Many came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that day. And yet that is the beauty. That is the beauty of the exposing and the saving and the powerful word of God. Yes, yes, it is the word of God that exposes our sin. It it condemns us of our sin before the holy God. It shows us to be guilty before the great judge of heaven and earth, but yet the word doesn't leave you there. The word brings you, the word brings you to the Savior. It brings you to the substitute. It brings you to the great high priest. It brings you to the one who shed his blood and he died and he took all the debts of those who would believe upon him and he rose from the dead. The word exposes our sin, but yet it joins you to Christ. The unrivaled glories of the word are powerful. Christian, a simple implication of all of this. We could read Psalm 119 and we could all feast upon the glories of that chapter. But Christian, if you hear anything this afternoon, yes, it is the word that is living and piercing and judging and exposing. But so what? Reading, believing, trust the power of the word. Let your home be filled with the reading and the talking of this word. Let your heart be saturated with the truth of this word. Wield the sword of the spirit when you're battling temptation in your life. And God will help you. Next week when we come together, we'll look at the great high priest that we have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the unrivaled glories of your word. Thank you for the piercing and the penetrating nature of your word. It exposes us before you, O holy God. We thank you that it does show us our sin and our guilt, but it binds us up as it espouses us. It joins us. It brings us to Christ our loving bridegroom and savior. Bring your word deep into our hearts. Help us to trust it and love it and live it and obey it and talk about it even as we go from here today. In Jesus' name, amen.